part of what I say at the beginning of every Sunday service is that we seek, part of what we gather here is that we seek to encourage people to grow spiritually by drawing not from one religion, but from all of them, or whichever ones feel meaningful to you, balanced with the insights of modern science, all that we know here in the early 21st century. The good news is that increasing numbers of people really are open to multiple religious truths and practices, uh, but that wasn't always the case. And uh, who remembers that? Was that the case when some of you were growing up, you know, that people were just like as open as they are today? Um, I think that really much was not. Uh, One of the people who helped turn the tide of public opinion more toward um, religious pluralism is Houston Smith, who died three years ago, um, almost three years ago at the age of 97. He died a little bit later this month in December. Smith is most well known for his book, The World's Religions. Uh, Has anybody read that? Or you may have known it under his original title, The Religions of Man. I see a few hands out there. Uh, It became a standard textbook in college-level comparative religion for nearly half a century. And it's arguably not a important book in comparative religion. It's arguably the most important book in comparative religious studies ever for how influential it was. Uh, And part of that is it was first published in 1958. Uh, at that time, it was, it was groundbreaking to offer a humane, appreciative, open-minded approach to all the world's religions that was accessible to a popular audience. Keep in mind, again, this is 1958, right? A very uh, conservative time in this country. Uh, it was the counterculture. You know, what we think of as the 1960s, that didn't begin on like January 1st, 1960, right? Uh, so they didn't go like straight into hippies. Didn't just like, oh, good, it's January 1st. Let's start that. Uh, you know, it wasn't. So if you think about 1958, it was another decade. It was 1968 when, for example, the Beatles flew to India to go to the ashram of Maharishi Mahesh. Um, um, yogi, right? So like this 1958, it's pretty important when he was doing this. So in this month of December, when multiple major religious holidays overlap and intersect, I'd like to share with you just a little bit about the fascinating life of Houston Smith, both to honor his path-breaking contributions to um, religious pluralism and for some of the insights we might find from his living for how we want to live our own lives. To start at the beginning, it was far from clear at first. You know, there's some people you can kind of see their trajectory from the very beginning. That was very much not the case with Houston Smith, that he was, you know, on this path to becoming one of the most, the world's most preeminent communicators about the world's religions. Very much in contrast, he was born in 1919. So some of you may remember, we just did a whole sermon on 1919 about the world of a century ago. So he was born in 1919 in a small rural village in China, 50 miles miles west of Shanghai. His family was part of a Christian um, missionary lineage that stretched back to the mid-19th century. So his maternal grandparents had also been Christian missionaries, and just like Houston, his mother had been born in China. The guiding motivation in his family of origin was to Christianize the world. That was what they were about. And in contrast to a worldly cosmopolitanism, his childhood world in rural China of the 1920s was, as you might imagine, incredibly rustic. No flush toilet, no television, no telephone, no newspaper, no automobiles, no planes overhead. 
Indeed, a man would visit everyone's outhouse each morning and leave a few coins for the privilege of taking their, quote, night soil uh, that was then used for fertilizer, what I think of as humanor. Uh, importantly, however, he said that neither he nor his siblings felt deprived. I mean, well, one thing, they didn't have television. They didn't have anything compare, to compare it to. It was just the way it was. In 1932, at the age of 13, his a world began to widen uh, when he moved away from his parents to attend high school in Shanghai. Uh, but a much bigger change came in 1936 at age 16 when he traveled 18 days by steamship. Of course, you know, there's not easy plane travel at that time. Uh, by steamship to the U.S. to attend a small Methodist college in Missouri where his father had attended. Now, this may have been a campus of 600 in a small Missouri town of 3,000, but he said to him, it felt like the Big Apple, this bustling metropolis. Modernity had arrived. Although Smith originally thought he would return to China after graduation, that's what his mother had done. She had come to the U.S. for college and then gone back to China, you know, and, and, with, and met and with his father, who went to the same college. But he knew, and you know, he thought he would become this third-generation Christian missionary. But after two weeks in the U.S., he said there was no going back. He quickly became an active part of campus life. He served as a writer and eventually the editor of the campus newspaper. He was the head of the pep rally. He was the president of his class all four years. My favorite story from his college years gives us a preview of his willingness to take controversial stances. Uh, he was summoned to the dean's office where he was told, quote, not today, not next week, and not until doomsday will you write another editorial called Central College Faces Syphilis. <laughs> that article, by the way, won a state journalism prize. <laughs> the dean was not pleased uh, at this, but, you know, important, right? Important, if controversial. At this point, we can also begin to see the beginnings of a thread that Smith would continue to follow throughout his life, that although the path was never clear in advance. Houston's favorite professor in college had been a protege of the theologian Henry Nelson Wyman. If any of you have heard of him, I'd be surprised. Really interesting guy, though. He taught at the University of Chicago, and in 1940, that connection helped Smith get into the Ph.D. program at, in Chicago. And as impressive as um, Wyman was, both in his books and in person, Smith was even more impressed with Kendra, Wyman's daughter, uh, after dating for two years, they were married in 1943, and the first of their eventual three children followed nine months and ten days later. They didn't waste any time. And although Houston Smith was not a Unitarian Universalist, I'll share with you a few examples of how he was frequently UU adjacent. Uh, although his dissertation advisor, Bernard Loomer, was not a UU at the time, uh, also a really interesting uh, guy, his theology was in many ways in sync with Unitarian Universalism, and toward the end of his life, Bernie Loomer did become a UU. He, there's even a book he published um, based on these really popular weekly conversations that he would lead at the UU congregation in Berkeley, California. Even more significantly, um, Houston Smith's mother-in-law was a Unitarian, and in 1949, his father-in-law became a Unitarian after he retired from UChicago and, at the age of 65, joined what is now our congregation in Eugene, Oregon. Uh, 
Relatedly, on the one occasion when Houston Smith had invited the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. to speak at the college where he was teaching, so he went and picked MLK up at the airport, it came up in conversation that King, who had done his PhD at Boston University, had recently completed his uh, dissertation on the theology of Henry Nelson Wyman. Uh, Smith confesses, I was too shy to tell him I'm actually Wyman's son-in-law. Now, that actually is tragic that I think he missed. I think King would have been super interested to know that. So I think that's a real tragedy. And it's actually a rare example of Smith letting an opportunity pass. Because I think that's one of the big takeaways we can get from studying his life is that he was always taking the risk of going through doors um, when they opened. Uh, and that if you feel strongly about making a potential connection, reach out. You may be surprised about the unforeseen possibilities that might unfold. I'll give you an example of what I'm talking about. In 1947, after teaching for two and a half years in a contract position at Denver University, he was offered a tenure-track position at St. Louis University in Missouri. Over the previous few years, he had grown increasingly interested in the philosophy of Gerald Hurd. I'd be super surprised if any of you have heard of him, but he was really actually well-known in mid-century. So knowing that Smith would have a break before his new job started, he just wrote to Hurd out of the blue and said, I, you know, I love your work. Could I possibly meet you in person? And Hurd wrote back and said, sure, but you should know that I live in a very remote area of Southern California. So if you can get here, I'd be glad to meet with you. This is further complicated by the fact that Smith and his family were still paying off major grad school debt, I know some of you can relate, and so they didn't own a car at the time, so he actually hitchhiked from Denver all the way to this remote location of Southern California. And here's where it starts to get interesting, as you can begin to see the fruit of Houston saying yes to opportunities. As he was preparing to leave Hurd's house after a good visit, Hurd said, you know, based on what we've been talking about, I think you'd really appreciate talking to a friend of mine who's just over in L.A. Maybe you want to swing by there before going back to Denver and then on to St. Louis. Uh, so he wrote his, this name and address on a piece of paper and handed it to him. And as H Smith was walking out the door, he realized the name was Aldous Huxley. Uh, so uh, he was like, yes, yes, I do want to meet Aldous Huxley. <laughs> Huxley, in turn, was glad to meet with Smith, you know, having Hurd's recommendation. And uh, in turn, learning that um, Smith was bound for St. Louis, said, you know, there's this really very good Swami that lives in St. Louis. You should meet him. Here's his name. I don't have his phone book, but it turns out when Smith got to St. Louis, there was only one Sat Prakashananda in the St. Louis uh, phone book. And in taking the risk of, so in taking the risk of writing a letter to Hurd, Smith thought he was simply reaching out to someone he really admired intellectually. He had no way of foreseeing that that brief encounter, that he would start, it's like a magician pulling on one of those threads. All of a sudden, he, that, that led to Aldous Huxley, who led to Sat Prakashananda, which blossomed into a friendship that suddenly Smith was not just learning about religion academically, as he'd been doing, but he was learning about the Hindu tradition from a lived practitioner, which wasn't so easy to do at the time. So he ended up meeting with this Indian holy man about once a week for a decade, from 1947 to 1958. And suffice it to say, that's not what most people were doing in America from 1947 to 1958. Um, you know, this is like McCarthyism, right? That, that's like what's happening in America um, while he's doing that. 
This experience of learning about religion from a real-life practitioner is a precedent that Smith would follow the rest of his life. His initial immersion into the Buddhist tradition meant spending the summer of 1956 meditating under two Zen masters, one of whom didn't even speak English in Kyoto, Japan. And when Smith was later adding a chapter on indigenous religions to his book, he regularly visited the um, Oan... Onondaga nation um, for a decade, quite regularly. But now I'm getting just a little bit ahead of myself uh, to again emphasize what it meant to be doing all of this in the late 40s and into the 50s. When Smith began teaching a, a course called The World's Religions, it was practically unheard of to have a course like that in university curricula at the time. And in 1955, because he was doing this unusual thing, he was phoned up and asked, hey, would you be willing to teach this course on television? It was with the um, National Education Television, a forerunner of PBS. So he turned uh, his class into a 17-episode uh, TV show. So all of a sudden, instead of teaching to a few students at a time, he was teaching to 100,000 or more. And one of that more than 100,000 people who watched that show was someone who had lived a rags-to-riches story and wrote Smith this letter. Dear Mr. Smith, I understand that some of the religions you are teaching in your television course are primarily practiced in countries you have not been to. If the university would grant you a semester's leave and you added your summer vacation to it, a check to fund a round-the-world trip for you and your wife will be in the return mail. Sincerely yours, William Danforth. Houston and Kendra were fortunately able to take that trip, and although that extended time away was actually quite hard on their young children who stayed with friends of the family. But Kendra said, frankly, she would rather, quote, hate herself for leaving her children behind on a month's long trip than set herself up to be resentful of them for the rest of her life for depriving her of this once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. So not the choice everyone would have made, but the one she did make. These opportunities helped Smith begin to develop the following method, to begin by reading a tradition's scriptures, to begin to do the, some familiarity, including profound and trusted commentaries on those scriptures. But a lot of people stop there, a lot of religion scholars stop there. But he would next seek out the most authentic and profound living representatives of those traditions. He would then do the rituals and practices himself. You know, he would actually pray to Mecca. He would actually do Zazen. He would actually whirl with the dervishes. You know, so he would actually do the things to get an insider's view. Only after completing these steps would he begin to teach and eventually to write about these religions with the result that a lot of, that a lot of people, when, when they would read each of his chapters from their perspective, they'd be like, oh, he gets me. He really gets me. You know, like that, that was sort of people's experience reading his stuff. This sort of participant observer model is common in academia today, but when Houston Smith started doing it, it really was weird. Most religion scholars at the time worked in their offices and they based their work on textual studies alone. As a result of these precedent-setting explorations, he was offered a, pr a professorship in 1958 at um, MIT, where he taught for more than a decade until 1973. There, his courses became the most popular in the philosophy department. But here's the flip side of being a, a trailblazer sometimes, the flip side of moving against that traditional model of dry theoretical academic research. He was never allowed to teach graduate students at MIT. As one of his colleagues told him, quote, the difference between us and you is that we count and you don't. 
This is MIT, right? Counting matters. And so this is, he was uh, both ways. But you know, what I wish, Smith just sort of nodded and walked away. What I wish he'd said is, I'll give you something to count. My book has sold three million copies. How many copies has your book sold? <laughs> but uh, there's so much more I'd like to tell you about Smith's life, but I'll limit myself to one more significant episode. On New Year's Day of 1961, again, keep in mind, 1961, right? That's when this is. Houston and Smith were invited to the home of Timothy Leary to try psilocybin. You know, Happy New Year, right? So keep in mind, at this point, Timothy Leary is still a clinical psychologist on faculty at Harvard University. It was not until 1963 that both he and Richard Albert, later named Ramdas, were, were fired for doing what he's about to do. Uh, so, and they're both in Cambridge, right? So, you know, they're, so he's at MIT and Harvard. Uh, so he did and had a, you know, interesting, quite an interesting experience. A few years later in 1964, Smith published an article titled, Do Drugs Have Religious Import? This is another example of being willing to be out there and on the record like he was in, in college, uh, which became the most reprinted, uh, reprinted essay in the history of the Journal of Philosophy. The upshot is that he did find value in psychedelics, giving people a taste of higher um, consciousness, but he cautioned that the goal of spiritual life ultimately is not altered states, but altered traits. It's not just about having an altered state, it's about permanently changing how you are in the world. He said, it's about cultivating morality and charity, not just blowing your mind. And blowing your mind may or may not lead to better ethics, right? And rather than continuing to take psychedelics long-term, Smith took the advice that Ram Dass once gave him to, quote, after you get the message, you can hang up. You know, you take psychedelics, you get the message, you can hang up, and then kind of build up gradually. Uh, there's an important epilogue to this story that I should add as well. Decades later, um, Smith was asked to be filmed taking peyote in solidarity with the Native American church as part of building a First Amendment case for uh, protecting, like, taking pe peyote um, as an indigenous religious practice. The last time Smith had taken psychedelics had not gone well, but he, uh, so that's another thing, right? It doesn't always go well. Note that. So the age of, uh, but he agreed given the importance of the cause. So the age of 73, this world-renowned scholar of religion, spent four nights in a peyote trance on film. In Houston's words, it was terrible and absolutely wonderful. Both of those things were true. In sharing about Smith's life, however, I'd be remiss if I left you with the impression that his life was pre pre predominantly or only one of serendipitous um, uh, encounters. He certainly had more than his fair share of happy synchronicities, but he also had a significant amount of sorrow and lie, loss. And I would encourage you, that's almost always the case. You know, sometimes we only see the surface of people's lives, but if you dig deeply enough, you'll find we all have our struggles. We all have our, our pain. Uh, Kristen Neff, who teaches about self-compassion, calls this the importance of common humanity. Sometimes we feel like I'm the only one suffering. And she said there's a tremendous amount of liberation and freedom. That's why people find support groups of people that have found, been in similar situations to them so helpful. It's just an experience of common humanity, right? You're not alone in this. 
so to name just a few of these examples from Smith's life, in 1993, when one of his daughters was 49 years old, she was tragically diagnosed with a fatal form of sarcoma, leaving her only months to live. And about a decade later, in 2002, another tragedy struck the family when one of his granddaughters, the child of another of his daughter, was killed under nefarious circumstances on a boat trip to the South Pacific. Smith also had his own ailments. He had surgery for prostate cancer. He had profound hearing loss uh, that forced him to cut back some of his public speaking, eventually had a cochlear implant. Uh, and he had serious osteoporosis. Uh, a few years, uh, for a few years, his health and mobility actually worsened to the point that he was moved to, out of his house into a managed care facility because it was too much for Kendra to care for him at home. But I love that he was actually able to move back home for the final seven years of his life because he and Kendra opened their home to a Tibetan family who, could, who needed housing. So in exchange for housing, they were able to do the help that he needed to be able to spend his final years at home. Looking back at the full span of Houston Smith's life, part of what is so remarkable is that he really was a trailblazer. There was no precedent for the way he lived his life. From the vantage point of a century ago, his career was just inconceivable. So he was kind of making it up as he went along. Smith himself also found it striking that although he never found a religion that he did like, his brother grew up in exactly the same circumstances as he has, and his brother has always been bored by religion. So it's just curious how these things work. Turning to Smith himself in his autobiography, he chose three quotes that for him really resonated as he sought to sum up his life from the perspective of his ninth decade. He said, one, how interesting, how very interesting it has been. And I think that's something we can aspire to, to be able to look back on your life. The two, he said, the older I get, the more the boundary between me and not me thins and becomes transparent. He felt increasingly deeply connected to other people and to the world. And third, he said, he just began to feel praise. Praise for everything. Thanks. Thanks for it all. And that spirit, as we continue to reflect on what insights or lessons Smith's life might have for our own life and living, I invite us to sing together one of Houston Smith's favorite hymns. Uh, we'll sing together 108 in your gray hymnal, My Life Flows On, an Endless Song. As you, we sing this, think about how might you live your life that you might, toward the end of it, be able to say, how can I keep from singing? Let's stand and sing together.